0: From Refine Labs, this is State of Demand Gen.
1: I'm super excited for our first event with Chris Walker and and Chris. I mean, I'm sure everyone knows who you are, but why don't you just give a a quick little background about yourself, you know, why you started Refine Labs, and uh, we've got a ton of questions, so we'll, we'll at least start there.
2: Cool. Yeah, looking forward to it. Hey, everyone, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Chris Walker. I'm the CEO of a company called Refine Labs. We help About 55 B2B SaaS companies transform their demand generation and go-to-market programs using a proprietary growth framework that we've called PIPE. And through the execution of these strategies across 55 companies inside of their CRM, looking at where the revenue is coming from, understanding their challenges with attribution or how they use technology or all these other things, through our scale we see the market in a much different way than I used to see it when I was a marketer working inside of one company. And so I think that I have a vantage point that is very unique and very uh, interesting. And there's some people that don't agree with some of my perspectives. A lot of those people tend to be people that have financial upside in either selling or otherwise partnering with technology vendors. But for those of you that want to uh, take the information, there's definitely huge opportunities. I think there's a the era of the, as Nick said, the revenue marketer or how marketing is changing overall. Like, we're in that spot right now. This is a career changing time for marketers because what's happening over the past 12 months, this is real stuff. Like, the last six months, maybe, way more of our sales conversations about working with Refine Labs happened with the CRO. Sales leaders are now being like, we really need to pick up on marketing. And the thing is, it's not about just picking up on marketing, it's about changing what you're trying to optimize for, it's about changing your mindset, it's about changing what you're doing. Um, And so there's a clear need in the market for people to go out there and be able to create demand in ways that companies haven't done before. And so it's a great opportunity for everybody and look forward to diving into the topics.
1: Amazing, amazing. So just a quick update for people that do have questions, you can throw them in the Q&A. Also, if you do want to hop up on stage and do a live video Q&A, we could do that as well. Just pop over to the Q&A tab. You would hit video Q&A. And then we can bring you up, but I do have a lot of questions that were sent my way before this. So, Chris, I'll, I'll kind of go with this one first. So, what do you see as an agency's role in a company with little to no marketing team?
2: It's funny. I, I, I love uh, I love my answer because sometimes it's counterintuitive. Like, I don't I, I don't think you should have an agency at that stage. I think you should have an in-house marketer or several marketers that are focused on business strategy. Who are we selling to? Why do we win? What are our customers like? When do they want to engage with sales? How do we empower our, whatever, three to 10 reps to improve their win rates or improve their conversations? Like that's what you need at that level, not an agency running ads for you.
1: Yeah, definitely agree with you there. There was another one, and this one was super interesting, and I'm kind of interested in myself as we try to figure this out, but for companies that are trying to move up market, How should they approach marketing and what kind of key strategies and tactics should they be considering?
2: I think you got to focus on stepwise moves. Like my company is doing it right now. The challenge of what most companies do and like some of them have been our customers before and just the strategy is broken and it doesn't work. It's like you can't go from being a 5K ACV product and then going into next year, say, okay, we're going to keep selling there, but then we're just going to go and win 100K deals. We have no proven go to market there. We don't know if we have product market fit there. So we're not sure if we have product market fit. We're not sure if we have go-to-market fit, but we're going to put into our plan that our ACV is going to go from 5K last year to 65K blended next to the future year. And what happens you just set the whole company up to fail. So when you're doing these things, you need to focus on first establishing the insights from the customer. The second piece is, do I have product market fit in that customer segment? And so inside of them, do I have product market fit? Like we have a couple episodes with Mark Roberge on the podcast that did a really great job outlining this. So I'll kind of like highlighted it like over broad strokes at a high level. You got to figure out because when you go from selling the 5K deal to the 100K deal, your customer usually changes. And when your customer changes, maybe your product needs to change too. So when you go in, you go and talk to those people, maybe they don't want to buy the product. Maybe they don't have the pain point. Maybe there's other things. Maybe there's other tools at that level of the market that they already use. So trying to figure out what are those types of things. And then if and when you establish more of a product market fit, which is like, okay, we can acquire customers consistently. Those customers have success with the product because we're in recurring revenue models for the most part. Then you got to think about, do we have go-to-market fit, which is focused on scale, customer acquisition costs, like operationalizing the things that you did in product market fit, which are typically unscalable. And so taking those logical like steps makes it a stepwise jump. And so I think about it way more as the, you march up market. You don't just like drop over here from 5K deals and, okay, now we're selling to the enterprise now. You really need to think about it as, okay, we're making jumps. We used to only sell to companies that were less than 100 employees. Now we're winning in the 250 employee segment. We had to make some changes to the product. We need to make some changes to how we message, but we did it. Now we're winning in deals that are 500 or thousand employees. Like these are awesome things. Our deal sizes are going up, things like that. Along the way, when you're in the go to market fit thing, part of the process, you might also realize we need different go to market strategies. We need different outbound motion. We need different types of sellers. We need a different sales process. So there's all of these nuances about how you change, but I think the, the biggest mistake that I see here is, is not acknowledging that you need to march up. And so I see projections of we're going to go from selling to only 200 employee and below companies to we're going to sell enterprise 10,000 plus accounts like McDonald's and companies like that. And it's usually a recipe to not win. That's awesome. It's a question from Grant. If a company is already doing the create demand strategy, how do you change the split the funnel assessment to still be relevant because it's not lead gen. The split the funnel analysis is definitely best used for companies that run all direct response lead gen, which is still a majority of the market. And so what happens with the split the funnel analysis from there is that typically the amount of sources that you have decrease a lot. So you go from getting all these leads from content syndication, paid social LinkedIn, paid social, Instagram, paid social, Facebook, YouTube, Google ads all these different places to really, it just comes down to like, we're optimizing across all these channels for people to come to our website and say, Hey, I want to buy now. And the amount of sources decrease you, then you have website and even in website, you could have like a source detail field that has like request a demo, free trial, sign up, contact us. You know, there's probably like sub sources inside of that. You definitely will most likely will have an event strategy still, or some level of field event strategy. And you'll probably have some like outbound enterprise ABM or outbound motion, something like that. And so once you get aligned, because the split the funnel analysis is really for marketing to analyze, where are the sources of pipeline that drive revenue? And so once you have that, you basically are like, okay, so these things that we're doing are not driving revenue. We have 12 months or more of historical data about what's happening. So we're going to stop doing them or we're going to change how we're doing them and we're going to focus on the ones that drive revenue at a high sales velocity. And then I move it into pipe instead of marketing sources, it becomes pipeline or go-to-market sources. Then you have website, you got events, you got enterprise ABM or outbound, probably maybe both, enterprise ABM, cold outbound, partner maybe, and then you have you know, for companies 3 to 6 core sources of pipeline. And when you break them into separate things, you can forecast better because each one will have different sales cycles, different win rates, different ACVs. You can forecast better, you can optimize better, and you can plan better. Instead, what companies do is they take all the sources of pipeline, they blend it into one. Some of the pipeline sources win at 12%, like use a gift card to get a meeting with a cold prospect on LinkedIn, maybe win those SQOs at 12%. And you got your demo request that you win at 41% but they all get mixed together. So there's a, and you don't see the win rate differences when you blend them. So it makes it very difficult to plan and forecast and figure out what marketing strategies do I want to keep deploying. So whether you're looking at MQLs or pipeline or anything like that, the sources of the pipeline are very strong predictors of win rates and sales cycle lengths, which when you can break them down and make it more simple, I think you just get a, a much more control over the outcomes. Chris, just to kind of riff on this part, I've been thinking about this a lot and I
0: maybe I'm a little confused because it, it sounds like a lot of what you're talking about is net new pipeline, but I actually was talking to somebody yesterday and a lot of their revenue comes from expansion. Mm-hmm. And I was curious if you look at like upsells and existing customers through the same lens of pipeline source, or I, I'd be curious to hear you talk about that because I feel like a lot of the time, at least I interpret how you're, you're talking about net new, but would be curious on the existing customers.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a point of clarification. Like this is a net new acquisition strategy. And then when you get into more of this like expansion motion, like companies will use influence revenue here, but like and it's hard to determine whether like are you just like is it making an impact or are you just doing things that you are tracking and you're going to sell that deal anyway? That's the thing. That's my main gripe with influence revenue. But on that, that side, like it's really driven at once you acquire the customer, I feel like if your marketing strategy is set well, where you're communicating a vision of how you see the world, you're creating content that people like, you're creating events that people like, regardless of whether they're a customer and your most, you know, highest paying, most evangelistic customer, or they're in your pipeline, or they've never heard of your business, that the content can make just as much of an impact on any one of those people. It just doesn't have the tracking, right? And then, but when you get to an upsell, most of the sources are going to come through account management, customer success or sales, like just the the attribution will will be weighted that way because you are they already know who to go to when they want to expand or we're going to proactively do that. I like to def- having marketing's budget get scrutinized against net new acquisition because this day and age, like that's where marketing drives the most impact. And then the activities that marketing does definitely influence the impact on expansion revenue, customer success, retention metrics like that. I just don't measure them that way.
0: That's awesome. Thanks for that clarification. The question actually came from a forecasting challenge of like, they're getting most of their revenue through expansion, but how the heck do they forecast that? Because typically it's like, yeah, they're coming to their person when they know they're ready to buy.
2: Yeah. But the problem is not forecasting expansion. It's figuring out how to get new net new customers. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's interesting to see this because companies shift, especially with the metric of NRR and things like that, companies are like, okay, marketing's now, instead of driving net new customers, they're gonna, 60% of their attainment is gonna come from influenced revenue of expansion deals. Mm -hmm. And what you do is you just take the most powerful weapon that you have in your go-to-market to to get new customers marketing, and you redirect them on something that your sales team and your customer success team can have on lock, right? It's like marketing should run air cover to those accounts, not spend 60% of their time and budget on expansion. Companies move that way because it's a band-aid because they can't acquire new customers. No, that's awesome. Thank
0: you for, for going in depth on that. For our next question, we got our good friend Jorge Soto, or George, as uh, some people know him by. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. How do you define product market fit versus go-to market fit?
2: I'm going to be uh, probably butchering my, my friend uh, Mark Robert's definitions here, but I, I think that he's defined it in a way that is... The strongest that I've seen, I think a lot of people use product market fit as like, we got 15 customers or we hit a million ARR or something like that, but they've redefined it. Mark has redefined it as some level of signal where a certain amount of the customer, our customers hit a certain retention metric. That's a leading metric to retention within a specific period of time. So for instance, one of HubSpot's examples, and this might not be 100% accurate, but you'll get a sense of what I'm saying. We want 75% of our customers to integrate five or more parts of the tool within 60 days of signing on. For Slack, it's like we want our accounts to send more than a thousand messages within 30 days. We want 80% of our accounts to send more than 30 a uh, thousand messages within 30 days. So it's a it's an action. There's it's time bound and it's a percentage of your overall customers that do it. If they do this thing, it's a very strong indicator that they're going to be a long-term successful customer. So it takes a, it takes the LTV conversation and it shortens it so you can take action on it more sooner. So that's in product market fit. It takes a lot of time and usually you're probably going to have to make assumptions and take guesses when you're in early stage. And then once you start to develop and aggregate data, especially if you're a SaaS product, you should be able to do some analytics and understand what are the behaviors that our best customers do within the first 60, 30 to 60 days. So product market fit on that side, it's subjective and you control it. But the key is that it's not going to work for you if you take shortcuts and it doesn't actually lead to retention and customer success. On the go-to-market fit side, it's can we achieve a level of customer acquisition cost to lifetime value ratio that is supports the scale of this business? So can we operationalize? and scale a program to maintain what they have is three to one CAC LTV. I think that you should be going for even further than that now but Mark defined as three to one LTV to CAC. And then, so you have two definitions there in product market fit. You're doing unscalable things. You're trying to get like, uh, the example that he gives David cancel from Drift, the CEO of Drift would fly out to customers to close one deal, totally not scalable, but when you only have 15 customers, it is. So do unscalable things during the product market fit phase to learn and get customers and things like that. But then at some point, as you reach the go-to-market fit stage, you need to figure out how am I going to create some level of operation so that this can scale and using a metric like LTV to CAC or a similar metric like that to as the control of while you do it.
1: Yeah, that was really good. I want to kind of go into a little bit, and I know it's funny because I feel like you brought this up about a year ago. So evangelism within B2B, MarTech and SalesTech. I know that like, you know, IT, they've had advocacy for a while, but I feel like MarTech and SalesTech are lagging behind. What are your thoughts on evangelism and doubling down on it as a strategy in 2022?
2: It's basically all that I do. <laughs> <laughs> with the recent evolution of the internet, specifically over the past two or three years with the mass movement into communities, social networks and think and things like that like the evangelist move has gone from great to exceptional when executed properly so i think it's an incredible buy to think about how to do this i think that the term thought leadership should be let's get rid of that term and let's move it to Evangelism, And that can happen through a chief evangelist. It could happen through, like at my company, we have tons of different people that are not incentivized on revenue that post great information for people. So there's a lot of different ways that that can come to form. But generally, like having one or more people that are communicating where you believe that the world is going as an organization and why it matters to the people that you're targeting or or working with, I think is uh, borderline necessary at this point.
1: Definitely agree with you there. Let's see. There was another question that came in that was that was pretty interesting. It was from Trisha. So, how did you land on Zoom recordings for your podcast strategy? How do you measure success for the podcast and what metrics are
2: important to you? Cool. Let's take these one by one. Great questions, Tricia. So how did you land on Zoom recordings for your podcast strategy? So, Trisha, we just like one week, Katano. Denardi and I were like, hey, you want to do a Zoom meeting for marketers and see what's going on? And we were like, yeah, let's try that. And we did it on Zoom and about 19 people showed up live and it was a great event. And we decided we wanted to keep doing it. Um, We continued on Zoom for a little while and then we would move to a, a different level of events platform if it was available. But the thing that Zoom has that other people do, we use Zoom meetings so that people that we can have as many people that are on the video be on video if they want. So it feels more like a community to us. Because we have like 50 to 75 people that are on video at those events and interact with one another in the chat and more than just like listen to what I'm saying. And because all the other virtual event platforms are web-based, they can't support that level of bandwidth for that many video feeds. So that's why we landed on Zoom from a technical reason is because we want it to feel more like a community. How do you measure the success for the podcast? We measure the success for the podcast on revenue. Is our business growing and not even attributed revenue? Is the business growing? I guess I'll break that down and then what metrics are important. So let's break this down in a bunch of different slices. So the first indicator that I'm looking for on the podcast, which we use a lot of live events to record the podcast because you get immediate feedback from the audience about whether or not the stuff that you're saying resonates with them, is are the things that I'm saying resonating with people? Are they valuable? Are people giving me positive feedback? What questions do they have? So the first signals are always qualitative. Most B2B marketers miss here because they're so obsessed with quant. They jump right to how many views did we get? Where's the attribution? How many leads did we get? The first step is in any content strategy, am I creating information that these people want? Ideally, am I creating information that these people need? When I say need, it's when they see that this is here, they think that it's a secret weapon. They think that they are getting information that other people don't have that give them an unfair competitive advantage. That's, I think, what the North Star needs to be for content. And people just don't go into it with the mindset like that. They're like, let's build this ebook so we can collect MQLs, you know? So, reframing why we're doing it in the first place, I think, is the first step. So, positive, qualitative signals is the first thing I'm looking for. If you get that and you have the right strategy, everything else is automatic. Everything else is going to follow. If I'm talking to the right people, I have a good product strategy. And they're engaged with the information, and it's leading them to understand more about what we're doing, the pain points or problems that we solve, things like that. The rest is just automatic. Beyond that, I'm looking what we use is the people that come into our website and say, "Hey, I'd love to talk to someone on your sales team about working with Refine Labs." That they have in there's a field that says, "How did you hear about us?" Required. And then we track that from the lead level, but it's way more interesting at the qualified opportunity level and the revenue level. So we take that information, we carry it through the opportunity all the way to the end. And at the moment, I think about last time I checked, 47% of our ARR that we've closed this year comes from people that said they heard about us from a podcast. So uh, that's how we chalk up the success of it. And I think those two pieces are all that you need. On the ground, am I getting the qualitative signals? And then at the top, like for more at the business level, are people coming in saying that they have been listening to the podcast and now they're here. You could do that through the self-reported attribution I talked about on the website. You could do that through win analysis. So like having a marketer or a customer experience person interview the buyer after they were done and see what were the steps they took along the way. You could have the sales team ask them in the first call, although I think that that is not ideal because it requires manual data entry and is prone to error. Um, But those are three ways that you could sort of like check it at the business level. And if the podcast is working, then you should be getting that stuff. Like people come to sales calls and we're like, I was listening to podcast episode 242 where you were talking about this. Can we talk about it more? You know, so like it should be very clear that it's working. Awesome. No, that's great. Uh, 47%. It's amazing.
0: Um, So for our next question, let's get our friend Moon. Moon kong kang over here what are your thoughts on how an org can give some sort of attribution to outbound opportunity creation when it was influenced by an abm orchestrations platform intel or triggers
2: moon it'd be awesome like i'll answer this question but if you want to drop a follow-up my question would be back to you would be uh why do you need that so that'll be a question back but i'll answer the question so what are your thoughts about some sort of attribution method of outbound opportunity creation when it was influenced by an ABM orchestration platforms, Intel or triggers. The first question I would ask back is why do you need to measure that typically when people need to measure that it's because they're not justifying their marketing budgets on sourced revenue. So step one in all marketing is like you should be able to defend your entire budget on how much revenue you source. And then the influence because it becomes a nice to have. It becomes a way to guide strategy. It becomes those things. That's really the cutoff. And I see people lean toward influence revenue because they can't source enough to, to defend the budget. If you were doing this, I would look at it at an account level. So, I'd be looking at who are, and it's difficult here because, right, if you're running one to many to all of your target accounts, then you basically have the ability to take credit on influencing every account, no matter what they come in, regardless of whether or not it made an impact. This is why it gets messy. So, I would do this in a more of a one to few fashion. Maybe you pick 100, you know, 50 to 200 accounts. And you do marketing to them, and then all you're looking for are those accounts coming to our website, are those accounts progressing through the stages inside of our ABM platform, although I believe those stages are flawed, are those accounts moving through those stages, and then are they, whether it's through outbound or an inbound conversion or any other way, are they converting into into pipeline? So all you're looking for, are we targeting those accounts, are they converting into pipeline? I think that would be a simple way to look at the influence level and it allows you to do a lot of the marketing moves that attribution software doesn't measure right so another gripe that i have with influenced revenue is that you get boxed into only doing certain things that software can measure direct response lead gen on paid social google stuff they got to get on your website and fill out a form so that you can measure it getting them to an event sending emails Certain things that are driven, that are easy to measure is where everyone with influence revenue ends up. Not posting content on LinkedIn, hosting third-party events, spending time in communities, posting content on LinkedIn. By focusing on the account, not on the attribution, I think you get more, you have more flexibility on what you can do to actually make that happen. But it's not perfect by any means. Some of the things that we have done in the past is you can... um, if you have a software that'll do account de-anonymization so you can have like a random person's on your website but they can tell for whatever reason based on ip or however they do it that that account is at t so then that happens then you can start to look at you can use utm sources about how do they actually get on the website was that from a paid ad or something like that it's not perfect but that's another way that you could look at am i getting my target is marketing helping get target accounts on our website? I don't love that, but that's one another way that you could do it. Awesome, very tactical feedback. Hopefully,
0: you got a lot of that moon for next one. I actually want to do a video Q and I'm excited, our first one. So we're going to bring Jorge Soto back up on stage. Let's uh, let's see. Here we are, Chris, big fan. You know, been
1: uh, in the space for a while, and very good friends with Mark. You know, there's this. Idea, I know you talk a lot about, and I just was wondering if you could elaborate around dark social. Number one, what does it cover? Is the, the first part of the question. And then, secondly, you know, to your point, a lot of these executives, founders, et cetera, they don't get it, right? They're just uh, looking at attribution data, quantitative stuff. What tips would you give folks out there around helping the organization, specifically C suite? to
2: buy into, hey, we need to do this. So on the dark social side and how you define it, I like defining it more in terms of principles than channels or places. And so the principle is that dark, meaning that it's not being measured by attribution software for whatever reason. The privacy policies on the platform restrict it, which is one of the main ones. But there are other or you're in direct word of mouth channels and in order to get that data at the contact or account level, you would have to violate people's privacy in order to do it. So you can't. So those are the, the main parts about the dark side. So attribution gets blocked by mainly privacy policies. And those things are going forwards, not backwards. We're not going backwards on privacy stuff anymore. So it's just it's only going to continue to move in this direction. On the social side, it's driven through word of mouth between peers, either at scale, I post on LinkedIn about a product or what I'm doing and 100,000 people see it, or in one to one, Nick sends me a DM and says, hey, I'm trying to figure out this thing. What product should I use? And I answer him, right? Or anything in between, like I'm in Revenue Collective and I say, hey, I want to ditch this vendor because they suck. Who should I use instead? And 30 people comment on that thread and tell you what you should do and why. So there's a ton of different examples about how this plays. But, and it's not only about what product should I use, right? It could be you taking this video saying it was really valuable and then you dropping it inside of a community or inside of a group or inside of something like that saying, hey, I thought this was valuable. You should check it out. And it's just the sharing of content, which then becomes there's 20 people in that thread that had never heard about Chris Walker or Refine Labs. But then they see that piece of video. They've heard about me. A couple of people start listening to the podcast. And then that's just when you do it. What happens when 50 people share my post and other people take the links? And so you can see how that starts to execute at scale. So dark, not being measured mainly because it would violate significant privacy policies of people. Social happening through word of mouth, you break that into channels or places, social networks, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, places like that. All of those platforms have significant privacy policies that would never give you the data that says, you know... Jorge watched my video on LinkedIn today for four minutes and 47 seconds, and they're going to push that into our CRM. There's no way that would violate every privacy policy about the platform. So that's not happening. We got content platforms. So I look at social networks and content platforms a little bit differently. Social networks, maybe more for there's a lot more engagement content platforms. It's more content first. So you have YouTube, Spotify, and Apple podcast, places like that you got communities communities could be slack discord linkedin facebook the medium doesn't really matter it's a community third party events like the one we're on here right i could drop a couple of names of vendors right now and there would be no tracking to that because they're not hosting the event so and that's happening at conferences that's happening in you know a CMO group that they meet with 30 CMOs it's happening all over the place so third party events and meetups There's direct word of mouth, DMs, one-on-one Zoom call, like places like, uh, what else is there? Text messages, phone calls, whatever. There's what I call internal company communication channels, mainly Slack or email, but this is mainly happening in Slack, where somebody will take a LinkedIn post of mine and then put it in their leadership Slack channel or put it in their marketing Slack channel, or if I talk about BDRs, put it in their BDR Slack channel or whatever. So those are six huge categories of where content gets shared, business priorities get set, people collaborate and understand what their peers are doing, they validate their decisions with peers either like directly or indirectly about, hey, like I'm gonna stop using this and keep using this and see if people give them the thumbs up or the thumbs down. All of that stuff is where buying happens right now. B2B buying, that's how it happens, right? And none of it gets tracked. And so that's the core issue here is that there's been a massive acceleration in all of these things. And people still play by all the old rules. We need attribution. We got to focus on. And then if you need attribution, you have to run an MQL machine. There's no way around it. So attribution and the need for attribution at the channel, at the marketing channel level drives what you do and how you do it. To a bunch of stuff of what you would do in 2011 or 2014 when the internet really was very immature, especially in a B2B landscape, where it was basically search engines and affiliate blogs, and then you had your own blog. And the evolution from there to there of like, how often do you go to a news website anymore? How often do you go to a vendor's website? You go there for one thing to convert. Everywhere else, you're getting the content in one of the places that I just listed. You're hanging out in those places. And then once you hit some level of intent, then you go to a couple of different places and that takes all of the attribution credit, review sites, Google search at, at the website, or you happen to get cold called by someone and they capture that demand. So that's what's over there. How do you get founders on board? You can share that, this clip, because that was one of the most clear ways that I've articulated this concept. But to be honest with you, the best way would be to find people that already believe in it. Because... If you look at your career over the next two-year period of time, and today is day one, and you're spending your time trying to convince people that the way the world works right now is the way it works when it's obvious. And so then you, it takes you six months to go and convince them, and then they're like, okay, I'll give you fi- like $5,000 a month to start like producing a podcast and running some LinkedIn ads. So then that happens. And then two months later, stuff's actually going pretty well. You're getting some positive signals, right? People are saying, I love the podcast. There's people like your buyers, things like that. And people are like, we're not getting enough leads, though. Where's the attribution report? And then you got to stop what you're doing, spend a month trying to put together some report for the executives that makes no sense and say, this is why it's working. And then, then they're like, OK, we'll let you keep going. And then you go for another two months and you have to stop and you stop innovating and you have to keep justifying If you took that and on day one, the people believed in what you were doing, you just go. And so you can see in how that stacks up in your career. The reason my my career has gone through a massive acceleration over the past three years, my career in terms of my, my knowledge and subject matter expertise, the reason is because nobody's getting in my fucking way anymore. So like, I don't have to go and justify that to the CEO. I don't need the VP of marketing breathing down my neck about MQL, so I have to stop doing the podcast and go and spend two weeks running the lead gen machine. Right? Those are some of the like pieces, but I like trying to educate people. And I like, I understand why, and I get this question so much. And there are, there are ways to get over of like, okay, like I, somebody, I buy in as an executive, I buy into the concept of dark social. But they don't live it. They don't lean into it. They don't like really use Mm. it as a power. And you want someone that's leaning into it.
1: Awesome. Well, listen, I can talk forever. So I'm going to shut up. Arthur, kick me off here before I start to talk too much. Chris, (laughs) thank you so much. Cool. Appreciate you. Good question. Cool. So we actually got another one, and this is—I mean, being a failed marketer myself, Chris, I know you did a bit of field marketing back in your day. So this one should be pretty, pretty interesting. So, what's your take on hosted or third-party event activations? How else can we gauge success besides the attendee list that we share with sales afterwards?
2: Mm. Deanna, could you uh, give a little bit more clarity? I'm not sure what you mean by a hosted or third-party event activation. You dropped that in the chat or something? Or Nick, maybe if you know, you can define that for me, but I'm not exactly sure what it means and I want to be clear before I answer it.
1: She hasn't dropped it in yet, but my guess is it's more of a, uh, I should have said webinars or events we internally host for field marketing efforts.
2: Okay. So uh, like a, a first party webinar, right? So you're the company and you're hosting the webinar for your customers or prospective customers. So a first party webinar. Let's cover that one first, because third party is different. And then third party, I assume that you're you're sponsoring it or something like that. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't know that it's happening. Right. It's sort of happening in the background.
1: She said uh, trade show or, or virtual event on like the third party.
2: Got it. OK. So the challenge that everyone has with these is that they they think that they're selling to the people that attend the event. And it's very easy to, because that's what people have done all along, right? Get someone into a webinar, try and teach them a certain concept, and then have your sales team try and pitch them, right? That's what people have been doing for a long time as a lead-in, just like the gated ebook side. Nobody wants that anymore. And nobody wants to go to a webinar to be indirectly sold on some level of a concept about some problem that your product solves. People can feel that. It just feels very salesy. And so when you think about the event, it's not about selling to the people at the event. It's about... How do you amplify the content afterwards that then creates the awareness that drives people in? So I find that field marketing gets too boxed in. Like it really needs to be field marketing and demand put together in order for this to re- like those two teams working together and having some level of shared KPI around this would be very important. I can't tell you the exact number, but my guess is less than 5% of our customers had a person at the company come to our first party event before they became a customer, like very few. Right. And so if we measured the success of our events only about who came to the events and did they buy from us later, it would have told us to stop doing the events a long time ago. So we need to think about a different, a different way to do it. So the activity for me of hosting the event is a part of the content process. And then I measure the success of the entire content process against how many people come in and say, I heard about you at, at, on the podcast or different things like that. So the event is just a vehicle to create the podcast. So I think at a, at a first party level, that's how I handle it. I recognize that that's not going to fly in a lot of companies. And a lot of field marketing events are way more geared toward converting people that are lower in the funnel than the way that I handle events. And so if the case is to put a field marketing event together in Kansas City With three accounts, two of them are your customers and one of them isn't with the intention of closing the one customer, then just measure the success of that event of did you close the the one customer, right? So I think if the objective of the event is to do sales, then just measure it against sales metrics. And if the event is to create awareness, create demand, produce other pieces of content, then I would measure it the way that I mentioned On the trade show type of side, I believe that the only reasonable way to measure the success of a trade show booth expense is on net new acquisition of people that you got badge scans at the booth. If you measured against that, a lot of trade shows would be deemed failures because it gets hidden because they do a lot of expansion conversations there. You could do all those conversations without a booth. Not a lot of people go around and look for like what booth to stop by anymore at a trade show, like, <laughs> because they have availability of the information and the content and the product information on the internet every day. So like, it's not like they, it's not like they need to go out of their way to discover some new level of innovation at the trade show booth. So when it comes to that, I would just look at, we scanned hundred badges. Those hundred badges created hundred badges of contacts that are net new accounts that created three opportunities. We won one of them. It was 30k ARR. We spent a quarter million on the Dreamforce booth, and you can sort of get to that level. I think that the piece that's most unique and the, was the thing that I said at the beginning about thinking differently about the event generally. About the event is not made to sell to the people at the event. If that's the mindset, the way that you and in, what in, events you invest in and how you do your own first-party events change a lot. It's really worked for me.
1: Yeah, that's, that's great, great feedback. So I want to get into to TikTok a little bit. I know, Chris, you're on there. Uh, it's a, a lot of the Refine Labs team's on there. I'm on there. I'm trying to get Arthur on there. He hasn't jumped on yet. But um, we got one. Could you share from Trevor? So could you share any early learnings from TikTok? What does your For You page look like? Is the algorithm naturally showing you B2B, marketing, sales, content creators, and thoughts on the future of the platform versus YouTube? I'll leave this up for a second for you.
2: Yeah. Um, Let's get into it. Early learnings for me is that I'm personally thinking about having a little bit of a different strategy on TikTok than I do on LinkedIn. Specifically on what are the topics that I'm talking about and why. And so I've treated LinkedIn as a more narrow focus right now. Like it's the, the my content is very specific and very niche. And I'm opening up the sort of like, I'm talking a lot more about entrepreneurship, career, things that I'm learning. It's opening up the lens a little bit and I mix in demand gen content. I don't have the mix down perfectly, but I am thinking that a little bit more of a broad angle is going to work for me there. Volume is definitely an important part of the process when a lot of my videos had started to take off. Like I've had a couple that have gone for a thousand engagements, which is really strong. It's like my best post on LinkedIn, get a thousand engagements, but I've got a couple of those on TikTok out the gate. And when those things happen, it's really driven through some level of volume or consistency. I had a sort of off it right now, but I was posting every day for quite a while. And I feel like once you get the snowball to start rolling, the TikTok algorithm really signals that because not a lot of people are doing it at that volume. So I do think that volume sets you apart. It's volume has worked. It works well on every platform. Volume worked well for me on LinkedIn and consistency. Volume and consistency will work on other platforms. Figuring out the video format, right? So like we can post-produce this video and then put it on TikTok, or I can take face to camera and film something like that raw. We're still trying to figure out which is best, or maybe they are both needed. But the level of post-production, I think, is higher on TikTok than on LinkedIn, how you put like how you overlay diagrams or words or captions or things like that to get people's attention. I think that the amount of time that you have to get someone to consume goes way down. So like the flip up flip, if you don't get someone in like less than a second, then I think that you're going to lose them. So getting getting something at the beginning is really important is another thing that I've learned. But generally, it's like. There's so many different ways to win, so it's like I found those things, but you should go out and test what it is for yourself, because. At the beginning of LinkedIn, people would tell me what they learned and I started to do it and I realized what they thought was wrong. So don't just listen to what I said. Really try and test it and figure it out for yourself. The For You page, I am getting uh, my content gets served to people that it belongs to. I got 2000 followers now, but everyone starts in zero. And my content's being served in For You pages to people that should see it. And I'm getting a mix of content about some people in content marketing. B2B or SaaS or things like that, and then a couple of other categories that are outside of B2B. The TikTok algorithm in terms of interest is by far the best algorithm on the internet, by far, about giving you the content that you should have, in my experience. And then against YouTube, YouTube's moving into shorts, but I don't think that YouTube has really cracked the code on mobile just yet. I think that it's still primarily a desktop platform, and people are use the mobile on the go. But I don't think that it's mobile native, and so but TikTok is. So I think TikTok has an advantage on mobile, and I think that YouTube is very heavy with ads, and TikTok, the way that they serve ads right now, is much more conducive to a user. And so I think that I don't see them as competitive. I think that they'll both coexist, but I think that uh, TikTok is leading in mobile. And YouTube clearly from like a content repository and other things. I think that they're winning in like the sheer volume and variety of content and how to how to find it. Um, so maybe it's maybe a better way to say that is it feels like YouTube is a better place for I want to get more of this information. I'm going to go there and find it. And I think that TikTok is better for discovery for like I don't exactly know what I'm looking for, but it's going to show me stuff. Maybe that's a good way to say it. So. Those are initial thoughts, hope it's helpful. Awesome, thanks for that question, Trevor. Funny story about Trevor,
0: talk about dark social interactions. So he joined Revenue Era, messaged somebody else. They said, hey, are you going to b 2 BMX? Came by, saw my talk, came up to the booth and he told me this whole thing. I was like, this is amazing. This is exactly what dark social is all about. So thanks for that question, Trevor, and for joining today. Yeah, dark social
2: Um, doesn't have to be through the internet either like a one-to-one conversation in person happens a lot. And there's trust, there's credibility, definitely not being measured. So there's a lot of the same elements. It's just like that level of word of mouth has happened for a long time, yeah. right? And now through the internet, it's just like way more opened up. And the thing is that I was a B2B marketer in 2014, aside from watching Rand Fishkin's like Whiteboard Fridays, there was no interaction with other B2B marketers. I didn't know how to get to them. I didn't know how to find them. I didn't know how to have conversations with them. So I had to go to Google and get information. And that's really the shift here is that now B2B professionals at all ages, 50 year olds and 25 year olds and everyone in between now know how to get to other B2B marketers, how to get to go and interact with other CFOs, how to interact with other chief like head of sales, right? And when they have that available they can go and ask them questions and things like that over the internet so they don't have to be at the same conference awesome yeah
0: so for next question i think i even heard you talk about this this morning chris on the podcast how you're looking at website content or something else so i think this one's a little different because he's talking about in social but how do you compare content around problem definition versus showing the solution directly inside of the feed
2: hmm Chris this is an interesting question. I don't have a a clear answer off the top of my head because I think that you need both. I think that you need some level of both and honestly like I'm sure that some people think that there's like some grand plan in our content strategy like oh we're going to post this and it'll be about the problem and we're going to post this and it'll be about the solution and then we'll like lead them down this funnel or something like that. There's literally like no thought into that. The thought is I'm going to put out information that helps people be better professionally and I'm not going to ask them to buy anything or anything like that. And once I do that, they're going to go and they're going to be able to take that information and they're going to be able to activate it in their business without buying my product or getting a consultation or anything. So they're going to take that information and they're going to be able to go and take that away and do things and get outcomes that are better than what they're doing right now. And once they do that, they're going to do a couple of things. They're going to trust me more. They're going to tell other people that they'd used this information and got better outcomes so you're going to start the dark social train. They're going to tell leaders inside of the company that they've tried these things and that they're working better, which is going to lead people to come to my our business's website and say, what does this company do and can they help me? And so from a content strategy standpoint, I think that you should be very focused on both things, helping people understand The business problems that you solve viscerally, that's the piece that's missing for most companies. It's like people feel it when I tell them that their LinkedIn lead gen ads win at 0.1% because they do. They can go back into the data and they can say, damn, Chris was right. We win one out of 780 LinkedIn lead gen leads. So with the level of specificity, they can feel... Like, I, I know the problem that they have in such a clear way, and I can communicate it both with business data and emotionally, like why is sales and marketing not aligned? Here's the business data. Here's the emotional side of it. So that piece. And then I don't really even talk about the solution that often. Like, I just tell people what they should, how they should solve it, and they can go and they can try and solve it on their own. We could help them solve it way faster and with a much higher likelihood of success. But all the stuff that I give is totally actionable, and they could do it on their own. Um, I think that's another piece that's missing from the SaaS like thing is that it all leads back to you got to buy the product. Like, how can you lead someone to something that they can do on their own in their business and be more successful with it without using your product? I think there's a middle step there in a content strategy that could be really helpful for a lot of product companies. That's how I think about it. It's awesome. Probably have time for one more question here,
0: and we, well, yeah, we got to make it to- quick because I'm
2: I'm jumping. From at 1 yeah, o'clock, right? Yeah, I got, I got, uh, I'm hosting an event at 1 so. o'clock. All right, let's make let's, tra- yeah, we'll snappy. it snappy. So this is <laughs> a <longest> foreign question, <laughs> question on community- <laughs> community-led go-to-market approaches. As community-led go-to-market approaches are on the rise, the dark funnel attribution problem seems to become more relevant for marketing teams. What's your advice for community-focused marketing teams when they have to defend their marketing budget by showing the, inf- showing the influence revenue? Go work at a different company. This whole question is like almost everything that I don't believe in. So I'm going to try and help you Florian real quick. It's weird. I don't think about it as community led anymore. Like I think that it's community is a part of it, but I don't like this, like the lead part, like it's sales led, it's product led, it's community led, it's whatever led, like community is a big part of making the strategy work. But when it comes to a, a lead, you're typically either product led or sales led. Community is one big element to making it work. I call it content-driven community. So that the real start is that the content and the point of view, and then people that believe in that content and point of view surround it and create a community. So it's the op- a lot of people start a community of in a different direction. It's like I think it's why my community is so like tight knit, is because the only people that would come are people that believe in the point of view, and it also becomes a really interesting content engine. So um, you got that piece. Obviously, there's massive challenges with attribution when you're doing things that aren't direct response. When you do things that are in the best interest of your customer, when you play the long game, when you do those things, software doesn't measure most of them. And so that's a realization that most people don't don't understand or don't think is true yet. And they will realize it over time because the market's going to force them that way. Buyers keep moving and eventually companies are going to have to look and be like, wow, our customers are way over there and we're still way over here because that's the only thing our software can measure. So eventually people will get forced that way. I wouldn't look at this as influenced revenue. I would put, how did you hear about us on your main conversion form on your website? And I would look at one, how many people are coming in and saying, hey, I want to buy now and how much pipeline do we create off of out of our website? Easiest way to look at it. Okay. Is that number growing every quarter? We, we create a um, million in quarter one in pipeline, and now we're at one, a million five, and now we're at 2.275, and now we're at four. If the business metrics are moving in the right direction, it's really interesting. Executives don't really care where it's coming from. So And it's, it's about centering people on the metric that matters. So we call it hero pipeline or pipeline that's going to win at a high rate and then move that metric. You'd be surprised how, how quickly people don't care about attribution. The second piece is you can add, how did you hear about us on the website? And people, will, if, if the community is impactful, they're going to tell you. So if there's people in there that are getting value out of the community for six months, like people will say, I've been in your community, I'm learning these things, or I've listened to your podcast, or I watched your CEO on LinkedIn, or I saw your CTO speak at this event, or they'll give you that information. So if you're trying to figure out how to measure anything in dark social, Like self-reported attribution is by far the easiest thing ever to implement. It'll get you way further than you are right now. And for a lot of companies, it's enough. Yeah, shout out Nick, maybe you can give a quick example and then we'll hop off here. But like, I think you've implemented that at your company and getting, uh, getting some really interesting insights
1: yeah yeah we're i mean I'm, I'm driving two to three inbounds per week and they're just from seeing my content on linkedin and i've actually driven two inbounds from tiktok and i'm just starting over there so it's, yeah no
2: attribution not- right like you'd never get that in attribution but people literally say that yep. yeah yeah it's crazy. so cool it's so yeah. simple exactly
1: so all right i know we're up on time chris thank you so much i know we didn't get to everyone's question but we'll have to do this again soon hope you all have a great rest of your day and uh We'll see you next time.
2: Thanks for putting this together and appreciate all the questions. See you soon. Hey, everyone, really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. I just wanted to take a second to say to all the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you really appreciate you tuning in, attending the live events, engaging on the LinkedIn content, and now watching us get started up and engaging on YouTube and TikTok. And so thank you thank you thank you to all of you and if you haven't already if you've gotten value from the podcast i would really appreciate it if you could go to apple podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating it would mean a lot to me thank you very much and we'll see you for the next episode